One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Some have likened it to the charge of the Light Brigade, but the Light Brigade only had to do it once. So said a former bomber pilot of this Royal Australian Air Force. He was referring to running the gauntlet of German anti-aircraft fire during bombing missions over occupied Europe during World War II. 463 Squadron, along with 460, 464, 466 and 456 Night Fighter Squadron, formed the Australian contribution to England's Bomber Command. Each crew was expected to survive 30 missions before they could hang up their goggles and gloves and go home. But the odds were heavily against completing that number. Still, thousands signed up and took their chances in England's only real option of fighting back against the German war machine. 3,486 Australians lost their lives over occupied Europe, representing about 20% of all Australian personnel killed in action across all theatres of the war. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. Hey everyone, welcome back. Firstly, it occurred to me that maybe not everyone is familiar with the charge of the Light Brigade, and so my opening line may not make much sense. So, before we embark upon this episode of the Australian Military History Podcast, I shall take a quick diversion to some English military history. The charge of the Light Brigade occurred during the Crimean War and was a result of jealousy, egos, and the British system of purchasing commissions and general incompetence. Outside of Balaclava on the Crimean Peninsula, the Russians had attacked and seized Turkish gun positions on the heights to the right of the British positions. The Turks were allied with the Poms during this war. The Light Brigade of Cavalry was ordered to retake the guns, but vague orders and a miscommunication caused the brigade to advance down the valley to attack the Russian guns at the other end. So by this stage, the Russians had guns in the hills to the right, more guns further down in the hills to the left, and finally, the main battery at the end of the valley. As Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote, Cannon to the left of them, cannon to the right of them, Cannon in front of them volleyed and thundered, Stormed out with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well, Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the six hundred. There you go, a bit of poetry thrown in, providing history and culture. You're welcome. Basically, they rode down the valley with cannon fire and musket fire, thinning their ranks from either side. Then, for the survivors who made it to the other end, the main battery opened up on them. The survivors of that then got in amongst the Russians and did a little bit of damage. But the Russian cavalry got their act together and the Light Brigade had no choice but to retreat. Their only avenue of escape was back down that valley that had decimated them on the way up. Except now they had the added hassle of the Russian cavalry nipping at their heels and driving the occasional lance through their back. Miraculously, quite a few made it back but many more lay dead and wounded in the Valley of Death. So when the pilot pointed out that the Light Brigade only had to do it once, you get an idea of what it must have been like to do it 30 times before you get to go home. And now, after that digression, on with today's episode, Aussies in Bomber Command. By June 1940, with the last British troops being whisked away from Dunkirk, Germany had a stranglehold on Western Europe. Although a substantial number of troops were saved, Old Blighty was in a lot of trouble. There was no way they could take the war to Germany in those early years of the war. In fact, for the last half of 1940 and the first half of 1941, 
They were fighting tooth and nail just to stop the German air attacks during what was known as the Blitz. Almost incessantly, the Luftwaffe sent waves and waves of bombers to pound English airfields, rail lines, ports and industrial centres. British fighter pilots and their Spitfires and Hurricanes went up to meet them in one of the classic defensive actions of history. Eventually, the German attacks were halted and the English could now return the favour, so to speak. They could finally start taking the war to Germany. German attacks on populated areas had opened the Pandora's box of what was considered fair and reasonable tactics in the prosecution of aerial warfare. They were about to experience what it was like to be on the receiving end as British Bomber Command began a prolonged campaign of bombing which would leave much of Germany and parts of occupied Europe in total ruin. Ever since the first bombing raid, there had been a back and forth argument about the morality of the bombing campaign. When you start to go down the wartime morality road, you'll be lucky if you ever get out. It's fair to say though, if you're in a fight and you stick to the Marcus of Queensbury rules while your opponent is biting and gouging and kicking and punching below the belt, then you and your honour are going to be lying in a bloody heap on the ground while your opponent walks away victorious. The Luftwaffe set the precedent, but Bomber Command took it to a whole other level. In Australia, Bob Menzies had called for volunteers for the second AIF. A few of those who answered the call opted to join the fledgling Royal Australian Air Force, RAAF with dreams of emulating the romantic exploits of the fighter aces of World War I. For many of them, it would turn out that the closest they ever got to a fighter plane was watching the ones which escorted them at the beginning and ending of bombing missions. Through their basic training, those with the attributes for fighter pilots were identified and sent on their merry way. The remainder ended up being sorted into various roles required in a bomber crew, pilots, navigators, bombardiers, radio operators and gunners. Upon completion of their basic and specialist training, although nominally still part of the RAAF, they were employed operationally within the Royal Air Force in England, where they underwent further training as part of the Empire Air Training Scheme alongside Canadian air crews. By March 1940, individual graduates of the training scheme were being taken on board by Bomber Command. Others who had trained in the RAAF prior to the outbreak of war had joined the RAF at the commencement of hostilities and were the first Australians to take part in bombing operations. One such gentleman was Huey Edwards. In February 1941, he joined 139 Squadron, flying Blenheim bombers. By May of that year, he became commander of the 105th Squadron, again flying Blenheims. On 4th of July 1941, Wing Commander Edwards led a squadron of 12 Blenheims in a daylight attack on the German city of Bremen, for which he was awarded the Victoria Cross. His citation reads, On 4th of July 1941, he led an important attack on the port of Bremen, one of the most heavily defended towns in Germany. This attack had to be made in daylight and there were no clouds to afford concealment. During the approach to the German coast, several enemy ships were sighted and Wing Commander Edwards knew that his aircraft would be reported and that the defences would be in a state of readiness. Undaunted by this misfortune, he brought his formation 50 miles overland to the target, flying at a height of little more than 50 feet passing under high-tension cables, carrying away telegraph wires, and finally passing through a formidable balloon barrage. On reaching Bremen, he was met with a hail of fire, all his aircraft being hit and four of them being destroyed. Nevertheless, he made the most successful attack and then, with the greatest skill and coolness, withdrew the surviving aircraft without further loss. Throughout the execution of this operation, which he had planned personally, with full knowledge of the risk entailed, Wing Commander Edwards displayed the highest possible standard of gallantry and determination. If you live or work on or above the fourth floor of a building, look out that window 
and imagine a large aircraft heavily loaded with bombs flying below you. Not only that, it's broad daylight and is being fired at across 50 miles of occupied territory. So low that on occasion that they collected telegraph wires on the way through. Not bad. Credit where credit is due. Not bad at all. Also, spare a thought for the crew that was in his aircraft and the crews of the aircraft which accompanied him. He may have earned the VC, but every man on that mission deserved a piece of it. By the middle of 1941, approximately 300 Australians were spread across 46 Bomber Command squadrons. There was no uniquely Australian squadron. That was about to change. In June, 455th Squadron was formed, followed by 458 in September. Despite the formation of Australian squadrons, many Australian aircrew opted to remain in their English squadrons. The Canadians within Bomber Command eventually created the Canadian Air Group, but there was never an equivalent Australian formation. For the duration of the war, the four Australian bomber squadrons and one night fighter squadron would serve as separate units within the command. Ever heard of the Hampton and Whitley bombers? No, neither did I. But they are the aircraft which 455 and 458 flew in support of the slightly better known Wellingtons. Halifax has also put it in appearance, but by early 1942 it was apparent that the medium bombers lacked the firepower and range required to fully thump the Nazis and so the four-engine Lancaster bomber stepped up and became the bomber of choice for the remainder of the war. It could carry twice the bomb load of its predecessors, and it could take that load further and at a higher altitude. In a moment, I'll take you through the who's who of a Lancaster crew. Geez, that seems like a really bad 1980s rap song, doesn't it? Anyway, but before I do, let's take a moment to consider what these men are signing up for. As I said earlier, each crew had to survive 30 missions before they could call it quits and the odds were against them. Now that means that each of them were facing the very real prospect of an early death. The lucky ones would be killed instantly when their plane explodes. Others will face a death which is immediately preceded by a long drop in a metal tube that is probably on fire. If they were lucky and were able to bail out, they were probably going to hit the ground in the middle of enemy territory, probably on their own. They were then faced with the possibility of capture and an unknown amount of time as a POW. If they managed to evade capture and get back to England, there was every chance they'd be put into another bomber and sent off to do it all again. What kind of person from any Air Force looks at that prospect and goes, yeah, right, I'll give it a go. There is no way you would ever get me in a bomber in World War II. Anyway, a Lancaster bomber crew consisted of seven men. Pilot, strangely enough, flew the plane. He was also in command of the crew, even if the other crew members outranked him on the ground. He was ultimately responsible for the lives of the crew and the aircraft itself. If a plane was so severely damaged that it couldn't continue, it was the pilot who ordered the bailout and would be the last to leave the doomed aircraft. The navigator made sure the plane was headed in the right direction. In these days of GPS, it pays to remember that navigators worked out the route, timings, rendezvous, etc. using little more than a compass, a map, a pencil and dividers, all while being bounced around in a noisy aircraft while being regularly shot at from the ground and air. Oh, and with Bomber Command, it was usually done at night. I'd like to see Google Maps manage that. Actually, I'd like to see Google Maps do anything of use more than 10 kilometres from the edge of suburbia. But that's another topic. The bomb aimer took control of the aircraft during the bomb run. Lying face down, peering through the bomb sights, he directed the plane to the appropriate position and then released the payload. The aimer was also responsible for taking a photograph of the target area after the bombs had been dropped. This was to prove the mission had been carried out and also to help gauge the effectiveness of the raid. The role of the flight engineer was possibly the busiest bloke on the crew. 
He controlled the aircraft's mechanical, hydraulic, electrical and fuel systems. He assisted the pilot with takeoff and landing. In an emergency, the flight engineer would also be needed to give accurate fuel calculations to the pilot to see if they'd be able to make it home. He was also the reserve bomb aimer and helped look out for enemy fighters. On the ground, he also liaised with the ground crew, who were responsible for servicing and maintaining the aircraft. The wireless operator sounds like a pretty cushy job when you realise that most operations were conducted under radio silence. But no. Apart from manning the radio for the duration of the flight, which could be many hours, he also served as the reserve gunner and addressed any minor emergencies in any part of the aircraft. Bit of a jack-of-all-trades, dog's-body type of person. If the aircraft got into difficulties, it was up to the operator to send out positional signals. Keeping in mind that when the situation rose for this to be necessary, he's probably surrounded by smoke, probably fire, possibly injured, and no doubt just a little bit unnerved. But yet, if he sent incorrect information, particularly if the aircraft had to ditch into the sea, then the crew's chance of being rescued evaporated. Quite a heavy responsibility. Finally, the gunners. Unlike their American counterparts in their B-17 flying fortresses, who had four gunners, the only gunners on a Lancaster crew were the mid-upper and rear turret gunners. They were physically separated from the other five crew members and were stuck in their respective turrets for the whole flight. Their main duty was to advise the pilot of enemy aircraft movements to allow him to take evasive action and to defend the aircraft against enemy fighters. Let's take a moment to consider the lot of the gunners, particularly the tail gunner. If you're a fine young gentleman of a Luftwaffe fighter squadron tasked with shooting down a bomber, your best approach would be to take it from behind. That would give you the best opportunity to measure your approach, line up your target and give it a good blast up the, uh, you know, up the kyber. On the other hand, if you're one of the fine young gentlemen of Bomber Command, who is unfortunate enough to be occupying the tail gunner seat, you'll be the one staring down the Messerschmitt and watching a line of tracer rounds heading your way, praying to the multiple deities that the tracer bullets going the other way hit him before the aforementioned Messerschmitt hits you. Bugger of a way to earn a living if you ask me. A slight digression there, but I thought it would be handy to have a basic understanding of what is meant when I refer to a bomber crew. Until mid-1941, Bomber Command's strategy was to target petroleum supply in order to effectively disable Germany's mechanised capability. Unfortunately, German successes on other fronts greatly enhanced its access to fuel and lubricants, and so the efficiency of targeting these supplies rapidly diminished. They simply couldn't knock them out faster than the Germans could replace them. On 9th July 1941, Bomber Command received a formal directive ordering a change of strategy. Rather than target oil supplies, they would attempt to cripple German mobility by attacking their transport system by hitting rail yards, junctions and major road infrastructure. It was also to undertake its most controversial role, destroying the morale of the civilian population, with special emphasis on industrial workers. It's easy to see the reasoning behind this decision. If workers show up to their factories in the knowledge that today could be the day England rains heavy explosive shells on them, then production of vital military equipment is going to suffer. And it did but it took much longer and it inflicted many more civilian casualties than anyone ever imagined. Also, by this stage, it had become apparent that the British bombers were unable to effectively defend themselves against flak and German fighter aircraft during daylight hours. The only real answer that gave the air crews any reasonable hope of returning alive was to conduct the raids at night. The obvious downside to this was visibility of targets was greatly reduced, meaning only a small percentage of the bombs found their intended targets. Many just fell and exploded harmlessly in farm paddocks. This was exacerbated further in summer, 
The short night hours of the northern European summer meant that comparatively short raids could be launched, denying Bomber Command of the ability to strike deep into German-held territory. If they reached too far, they'd be exposed on the return journey and be prime targets for the fighters. Another issue which began to reduce the effectiveness of bringing factory output to a halt was Germany's naval blockade of England. Too many merchant ships were being lost to U-boats and if that trend continued, England could well be starved into submission. To counter this, the Royal Navy implemented the convoy system, but Bomber Command was also tasked with destroying port facilities and U-boat construction. The available men and aircraft were being spread too thinly to be able to be effective in any one area. But they had little option but to continue and try to improve their procedures to make sure each attack achieved the maximum result possible. On 23rd of February 1942, Air Chief Marshal Arthur Harris was appointed to Bomber Command and under his leadership, Bomber Command was forged into a powerful fighting force. Harris decided that concentration of force was the only way forward and on the night of the 28th to 29th of March, he put his theory into action with a 224 aircraft raid on the Baltic port of Lübeck. This raid included 10 Hampton bombers of 455 RAAF squadron and caused more damage than any previous raid. This was followed by a massive attack over Cologne on the following night. More than 1,000 aircraft, more than twice the number of any previous raid, headed for the Ruhr Valley. It was also the first mission to use the bomber stream tactic. All aircraft, once assembled, flew the same route to the target, with each squadron allocated its own position and height within the stream. The intent was to deliver the most destruction possible in the shortest time in order to overwhelm the firefighters on the ground, leading to more destructive fires. This attack caused more damage than all previous raids combined, for the comparatively small cost of 40 aircraft failing to return. A further innovation was created in August 1942, the Pathfinder Force. Under the command of Australian Air Commodore Donald Bennett, an acknowledged expert on navigation, the force was to be a specialist target finding unit to help with bomber accuracy. They were the first units to be given access to the new targeting aids, initially radio wave based targeting and eventually radar. The Pathfinder's task was to locate the target and drop illuminating flares which the main force could then set their sights on. It has to be said that initial results were underwhelming. The first two raids led by the Pathfinders on the cities of Flensburg and Frankfurt were dismal failures. The Flensburg raid did inflict some minor damage. The only problem was it was inflicted on a couple of villages about 25 miles north of Flensburg. They destroyed 26 houses and injured four Danish people. The Frankfurt raid was only slightly better. Most of the bombs fell in open country, but some did fall on Frankfurt and caused a few fires and some moderate damage. Five people died, with about 95 injured. A couple of small villages on the outskirts of Frankfurt, mainly home to small artisan craftsmen, bore the brunt of the bombing. For this meagre result, Bomber Command lost 16 aircraft, about 7% of the total aircraft sent, as well as five pathfinders. Shaky start, to say the least. The pathfinders finally got it right on the night of the 27th to 28th of August, when it led a raid against Kassel in northern Germany. It was a relatively clear night, and as a result, the Pathfinders had a clear view of the targets. They placed their markers with accuracy and gave the following bombers easy targets. The result was 144 buildings destroyed, including military establishments and three factories of the Henschel Aircraft Company. 28 soldiers and 15 civilians were killed, and 187 civilians and 64 soldiers injured. Bomber Command still lost 10% of the attacking force, but at least this time they had something to show for it. Eventually, with improvements in navigation and targeting, and better procedures, 
the Pathfinders became an integral part of each bombing attack and greatly increased the effectiveness of the air campaign. In February 1942, 455 Squadron left for operations in the Middle East and 458 Squadron transferred to Coastal Command, leaving 460 as the only RAAF squadron within Bomber Command for most of the year. 466 and 467 squadrons were formed at the end of 1942 and flew their first missions in January of 1943. Many Australians served within other British squadrons. One such lad was Flight Sergeant Rawdon Middleton, formerly of Sydney. On 28th of November 1942, Middleton's squadron, 149, was detailed to bomb the Fiat aircraft works at Turin. He was flying a Stirling bomber, which due to its short wingspan had difficulty carrying its full load of fuel and bombs over the Alps. Middleton and his crew arrived above Turin and had to make three low-level passes in order to identify the target. On the third pass, the aircraft was hit by heavy anti-aircraft fire and sustained heavy damage. Middleton's co-pilot and radio operator were wounded as well as Middleton, who suffered shrapnel wounds to the arms, legs and body, had his right eye torn from a socket and his jaw shattered. His injuries rendered him unconscious for a short period of time, during which his co-pilot, Flight Sergeant Hyder, managed to bring the stricken aircraft under control. Hyder managed to release the bomb load, which no doubt lightened the aircraft considerably and gave them some chance of staying airborne. Middleton regained consciousness and helped Hyder recover control of his bomber. As you can imagine, Middleton was in a bad way, barely able to see, was losing blood from wounds all over his body and was struggling to breathe. Regardless, he took command of the aircraft and pointed it for England. The return flight lasted for four hours. Middleton regularly tried to reassure his crew via the intercom, saying, I'll make the English coast, I'll get you home. They took further flak while flying over France, but eventually the English coast presented itself. Only problem was, by this stage they only had five minutes of fuel left. There was no chance of making it safely to an airfield. Middleton turned so that he was flying parallel to the coast and ordered his crew to bail out. All but the front gunner and flight engineer jumped and landed safely. The gunner and engineer tried to talk Middleton into making a forced landing on the coast, but Middleton felt that the risk of civilian casualties were too great. He ordered the men to bail out. Unfortunately, these two did not survive their night in the English Channel. Alone now in his bomber, Middleton could finally allow his ordeal to end, and he crashed into the sea off the coast of Dimchurch. His body was recovered on the 1st of February. The last line of his Victoria Cross citation reads, his devotion to duty in the face of overwhelming odds is unsurpassed in the annals of the Royal Air Force. It was his 29th combat sortie, one short of the 30 required for the completion of a tour. There are no words to adequately describe the amount of courage it must have taken to fight through what must have been excruciating pain for over four hours to get his crew back to safety. In 1943, Bomber Command concentrated its efforts against three major targets in what became known as the Battle of the Ruhr the Battle of Hamburg and the Battle of Berlin. The Battle of the Ruhr was a five-month campaign specifically targeting the industrial centres within the Ruhr Valley. The area was a major industrial centre in northwest Germany. It produced large quantities of steel and synthetic oil and also included the Krupp armaments work. If you want to do damage to German military and industrial output, the Ruhr is the place to go. In all, 43 separate raids were mounted in the region, with Australians involved in many either as part of British squadrons or RAAF squadrons. Due to the industrial nature of the area, a semi-permanent smog hung low and made targeting difficult. Also, the Germans, never short of an innovative idea or two, set up a Krupp decoy site, which was a full-sized replica of the Krupp factory, which received quite a bit of attention that could have gone to the real factory. Despite the difficulty with targeting and German deception, the campaign was overall successful. 
Steel production was estimated to have fallen by 200,000 tonnes, which had a flow-on effect on aircraft production for the Luftwaffe. And despite the Krupp factory decoy site, the real Krupp armament factory also suffered heavy damage. During the Battle of the Ruhr, the famous dam buster raids took place. The 16 Lancasters which made this attack carried 13 Australians, four of whom were captains of aircraft. Eight Lancasters were lost, resulting in the deaths of 55 men with only a solitary Australian rear gunner surviving to become a prisoner of war. Of the 12 other Australians, only two were killed, with 10 returning safely. In July and August of 1943, Hamburg was attacking four major raids in 10 days, causing enormous destruction which ignited massive fires and left the city in smouldering ruins. It was during these attacks that window was used for the first time. Window were thousands of strips of aluminium dropped from the attacking aircraft in order to confuse the German air and ground radar. Although it couldn't conceal the exact location of the raid, it did effectively hide the number of aircraft involved, their formation and to some extent their heading. After a month of successful raids on Hamburg, Bomber Command launched three heavier raids on the German capital, Berlin, deep inside Germany. The success of these raids prompted Bomber Command to undertake a winter campaign against Berlin. Not only would it impact German production, but Berlin was the beating heart of the Third Reich, of Nazism and of Germany itself. Having Allied bombs dropping on this beating heart, it was felt, would crush the will of the German people to continue the war. It came at a cost though. To attack Berlin, the bombers would have to fly over 500 miles of occupied territory with bands of anti-aircraft guns located along the way. The range far exceeded the range of fighter aircraft to provide protection, and so specialised German night fighters could fly in and pick off the bombers as they flew on. Between November 1943 and March 1944, a total of 9,105 aircraft were sent to Berlin and 539 were lost. Of the 787 RAAF aircraft dispatch, 45 were shot down. That accounted for 6% of the force. The outcome was far less destructive than initially hoped for. Berlin is a large area and the bombs simply didn't fall in large enough numbers to really do any serious damage. It certainly didn't compel the German people to give up. Although Bomber Command concentrated its efforts on these major battles, many other targets were attacked during the same period. For example, 12 raids were made against northern Italy, designed to cripple the Italian will to resist the invasion of Sicily. Other strategic targets were attacked to try and reduce the U-boat threat, damage German capacity to replace aircraft, disrupt German transport within occupied territory, and to generally wear down the population. November 1943 saw the creation of a 4th Australian Squadron, number 463, under the command of Wing Commander Rollo Kingsford-Smith. For most Australians, and to many aviation enthusiasts around the world, the name Kingsford Smith is synonymous with Australian aviation. Rollo was the nephew of Sir Charles Kingsford Smith, who achieved many early aviation feats, the most famous being the first trans... Can I say that word these days without offending anyone? Doesn't matter. Being the first trans-Pacific flight from America to Australia. Rollo commanded 463 Squadron from its inception up to June 1944 when Bomber Command found, another, found other uses for him. The last major raid for that winter of 1943-44 was targeted towards the city of Nuremberg, a beautiful city full of picture postcard Bavarian buildings which could have been taken straight out of your favourite Grimm's Brother fairy tale, or at least the sanitised Disney version thereof. Unfortunately, the city is tainted by its association with Nazism. This was the city where Adolf Hitler held his famous rallies and was more or less the spiritual home of the Nazis. It's also where many of those Nazis stood trial after the war and where some of the most prominent members were executed. 
But in March 1944, it was important to the Allies for much more pragmatic reasons. It was a major centre for the German aircraft industry. Keeping in mind that in the timeline of the war in general, March 1944 is only three months before the D-Day landings. A very real prerequisite for the success of the landings was air superiority. And so all efforts were put into preventing Germany from replacing her aircraft losses in the lead-up to D-Day. The Nuremberg raid took place on the night of the 30th, 31st of March. In all, 795 bombers took part, including 75 from the four Australian squadrons. In total, 95 aircraft were lost, including five Australian aircraft. So when you do the maths, 95 aircraft, each with a crew of about seven men, give or take, means a lot of lost men. How many? 545 killed, 159 taken prisoner. From the Australian squadrons, 20 were killed. Australians from other Bomber Command squadrons accounted for another 40 of the dead. It was Bomber Command's worst losses in a single raid during the war. With the D-Day invasion coming up from early April 1944, the attention of Bomber Command turned to preparing the landing area for the invading troops. 53 raids were launched against rail and road targets in order to impede German movement throughout the area of Normandy. RAAF units were involved in 25 of these raids and lost 17 aircraft. By this stage, the Germans knew an invasion attempt was imminent. What they didn't know with any certainty was where it would be made. The area around Calais was the most obvious point, as it was the closest point to England. Which is one reason why the Allies chose not to land there. I mean, why go to the place where your enemy are most expecting you to go? Now obviously, if all bombing raids throughout this period were focused around the Normandy beachheads, then it would have made it pretty obvious exactly where the Allies were planning to lob. So in order to keep the Germans guessing, raids were conducted elsewhere targeting bridges over the Seine River and targeting radar and wireless stations in the Loire Valley. RAAF squadrons took part in nine raids deep into Germany between 20th of April and the 23rd of May, keeping up the impression that all was continuing as normal. On the night before the landings, Bomber Command attacked 10 coastal batteries around the Normandy beaches with about 100 aircraft against each battery. On the day, some raids were intended to provide assistance to the landing, but the crews erred on the side of caution and dropped their bombs further inland so as to avoid any chance of dropping on their own troops, and as a result actually provided very little assistance to the landing forces. After the successful securing of the Normandy beaches, throughout the last 10 months of the war, there was strong argument on which direction strategic bombing should take. The Americans and the RAF Chief of Air Staff argued for concentration against oil supplies, Others argued that attacks against transportation and communications would have a greater impact, but it really was a moot point. By this stage of the war, the US and British bomber commands had so many aircraft and crews available to them, and very little Luftwaffe interference, that they could launch attacks against both oil and transportation targets, and communications and important cities. As the end of the war approached, some began to question the morality of continuing the bombing of cities and civilians, particularly after what happened to Dresden in February of 1945. Over two nights, US and RAF bombers dropped 3,900 tonnes of high-explosive and incendiary bombs, creating a firestorm which killed an estimated 22,700 to 25,000 people. A lady by the name of Margaret Freyer left the following account of what it was like to be under that bombardment. To my left, I suddenly see a woman. I can see her to this day and shall never forget it. She carries a bundle in her arms. It's a baby. She runs, she falls, and the child flies in an arc into the fire. Suddenly I saw people again right in front of me. 
They scream and gesticulate with their hands, and then, to my utter horror and amazement, I see how one after the other they simply seem to let themselves drop to the ground. Today I know that these unfortunate people were the victims of lack of oxygen. They fainted and then burnt to cinders. Insane fear grips me, and from then on I repeat one simple sentence to myself continuously. I don't want to burn to death. I do not know how many people I fell over. I knew only one thing, that I must not burn. So the firestorm is so intense that it burns up all the oxygen. It's almost impossible to comprehend. And I'd say the only people today who could even come close to understanding it would be those who were caught in the intense bushfires, such as those experienced in Australia in the summer of 2019 and 2020, or other such events around the world. I said earlier, if you try to sort out the morality of war, you'd be lucky to ever get out of it. But by this stage of the war, Germany is on its knees and the end is in sight. Was bombing entire cities now vital to winning the war? The RAF chief of staff had no doubts. He rationalised it by saying, Dresden was a mass of munition works, an intact government centre and key transportation centre. It is now none of those things. I suppose at least we know where he stood on the subject. Australians of number 463 Squadron, which had joined Bomber Command in August 1944, flew the last RAAF combat operation on the night of the 2nd to 3rd of May 1945. Less than a week later, the war was over. The bombers then turned their attention to more humane missions. They flew liberated prisoners of war back to England and dropped food and medical supplies into Holland. Australian casualties in Bomber Command were 3,486 dead and 265 injured. After the war, 750 Australian aircrew were released from German prisoner of war camps, most of whom would have flown with the Bomber Command. The ratio of dead to wounded gives a pretty good indication of your chances of survival if your plane was hit. It has often been said that soldiers in the trenches of World War I were safer than bomber crews in World War II. Now I'm no statistician and my math skills would embarrass a 10 year old, so please forgive me if I get this wrong. But from an Australian perspective, 330,000 served in World War I, of which around 60,000 were killed. That's about 20%, according to the answer Google returned. About 10,000 served in Bomber Command, and as I stated, 3,486 lives were lost. Again, Google tells me that is about 35%. So based on that highly sophisticated calculation, you would be safe in assuming that it was indeed more dangerous to be a bomber in World War II than in the trenches of World War I. As I said at the end of the last episode of the Scrap Iron Flotilla, to the Mem of Bomber Command, a well-deserved salute to the lot of you. So, hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, please feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. And don't forget to leave a review and comment on iTunes. And also remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.